is lengthy this evening. It's First Samuel chapter 20 as we make our way through this book. A long story of uh, one uh, little incident in a sense where David is seeking guidance for his future and to know the nature of Saul's heart toward him. So we're in First Samuel, we're in chapter 20 beginning to read at verse 1. This is God's word to us. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know, lest he be grieved. But Truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But... If there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. 
Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside this stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them. Then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you. And there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you. Then go. For the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul. David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in this city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I find favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brother. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David. And with him a little boy. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. They kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most.
Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. We pray that God would bless to us this reading from his word. Let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to study this passage together and contemplate your word, we ask again for wisdom, for obedience, from strength in you that enables us to do your bidding day by day. Lord, this is an ancient story, 3,000 years old, but may it come to us with freshness and power for our lives, our days, and your glory. Through Christ we ask it. Amen. It's been a few weeks since we've been in First Samuel, so let me uh, take a moment to remind you of what's been happening as the congregation leaves the building. <laughs> what was that I said? So the end of Saul's kingship has been signaled, and the presence and power that had been at work in Saul's life has gone from him. David has been appointed as his successor, and now with the anointing of God's Spirit upon him, he (coughs) experiences a meteoric rise to become a national hero in Israel. In spite of the clarity of God's word, in judgment upon his sin, and God declaring that for certainty Jonathan would not succeed him on the throne, Uncontrolled rage, triggered by jealousy, has driven Saul to repeated attempts to eliminate this threat to his family royal line through David's extermination. Teams of assassins have been sent out to kill him, and each time they have failed. Saul came to that conclusion that if you want a job done, you're better to do it yourself. So he went off to put David to death by his own hand. But in spite of his desire to kill David, this warmonger became a worshipper as he was humbled and lay before God, naked on the ground. And indeed, two weeks ago when we were in chapter 19, that's where we left Saul. And one significant element has been left from the issues of recent chapters. And that's the one that dominates this chapter this evening. That the young man, David, Saul's servant, and the late middle-aged man, Jonathan, Saul's son, have become as one in heart and soul. And the bond that was forged between these two men is the central theme of this 20th chapter. Now we know that God's favor surrounds David like a shield. But that does not eliminate the fear and anxiety that that, that crushes his heart. And so, in his position of extremity, he looks for the only one that he believes he can trust at this time. And he heads back into enemy territory that he might consult with Jonathan. Let me read verses 1 and 2 with you again. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah, And came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? 
they said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. So three points this evening. The first is this, this friendship that had been forged. The friendship forged. I hope you haven't. But I suspect you have, at least the vast majority of us have, found ourselves in, in really difficult times. You find yourself just because of the circumstances of life under severe pressure and you're really not sure which way to turn. And in looking for answers through that trial, you go to converse with a friend, someone with whom you can confidentially unburden your heart. I hope you have good friends like that. They are a rich treasure indeed. And never to be taken for granted. David goes to unburden his heart before his dear friend, Jonathan. And the old saying goes that a friend in need is a friend indeed. But I suspect at times you will have discovered that sometimes a friend in need is a real pain. You know, oh, they're coming again, they've got problems, or, you know, and you can feel that at times draining the very life out of you. And maybe you've had that experience too. But, but where there is a deep bond of love, where there is a, a strong commitment forged, then there are no limits of what might be asked of them or by them. And there's that lovely proverb, Proverbs 17, 17, which says, A friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. And that's the kind of, of kinship or friendship that these two men have. And David comes, he seeks out Jonathan, he unburdens his heart before him. He doesn't understand what has got into Saul. Why is he so determined to kill David? After all, it is an irrational rage. It makes no sense. David has done nothing wrong. He has rather done the opposite. Everything that Saul has required of him, he has excelled in. And of course, you understand the, the dynamics of that situation. That the more David's competency and integrity is on display, the greater and more starkly that con contrasts with the darkness and the depravity of Saul's heart. When someone is flourishing and you are floundering, it never makes you feel particularly better when they continue to succeed. And so Saul is enraged with David and set to kill him. But look at again Jonathan's response, verse 2. He said, Far from it you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Jonathan's words here remind us that it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to be objective about uh, the feelings in the lives of those we love. Sometimes those who are around us, we, we don't see the flaws in them. It takes someone from outside uh, to show us the truth. In his commentary, Kenneth Chafin notes, it's encouraging to know that in a home where the father was suspicious of everyone, there could grow up a son 
who trusted everyone. So Jonathan has these misgivings, but he agrees that he will be uh, David's supporter in this. He will make inquiries of his father. He will communicate the outcome and to ensure that whatever happens, David will not be harmed. The plan is hatched and the method of communication was agreed. Uh, And I'm not sure what you feel as you read this, but uh, there are a number of times in Scripture when you come across passages like this, you're left feeling a little bit uncomfortable about the deception that the two men agreed to enter into. And it's a very common thing in the Old Testament that, that God's servants act in sinful ways. But the Scripture gives no commentary on these and makes no judgment of them. We can sense, reading between the lines, God's disapproval, but it is not before us in the text. For example, we know that both Abraham and Isaac lied about the identity of their wives. Rahab lies about the whereabouts of the spies. Gideon twice requires confirmation from God in the laying of his fleece. And the Old Testament merely shares these stories before us and does not outwardly condemn them. And here we discover once again that through David, Jonathan intends to report to his father what is not the truth. Many years ago now, a a minister of another denomination uh, deliberately deceived me. And whenever I discovered this, I I went to challenge him about his conduct. uh, And his excuse was this, well, well, that's what they did in the Bible. Now, now here's a word of wisdom. If you hear nothing else tonight, hear this. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean you should do it. There's a lot of things in the Bible, really don't be doing them because they're not good. But Jonathan and David hatch this plan. And David puts his life into the hands of his trusted friend. And as you read this story, you've got to recognize the basis on which this Friendship is founded. That the key that that makes this unique is the covenant into which these two men have entered before God. We remember back, it's a couple of weeks ago now, we were in chapter 18. And there, Jonathan makes this significant act of commitment to David. He takes off his robe, his armor, his belt, his weapons, and he gives them to the young man. And in this, Jonathan didn't just honor David as his friend. He committed himself to serve him as his king. It's a bit like Paul who who writes in Philippians 3, 7 and 8. He said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, in order to have a right relationship with the king, there are things in our lives that we have to renounce. Things that we have to give up for him. And both these men understood that the the dynamic of their relationship was greater. Something of more significance than just human friendship. If you have that chapter open before you, just just look down at some verses. Verse 8. 
It says, you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Verse 16, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. Again, we note in verse 23, it says, the Lord is between you and me forever. So these two men were were bonded together in a significant way. It wasn't friendship. It was much, much more. It was a covenant commitment sealed by God. And while in the first instance we know that David in our chapter would be the beneficiary of this friendship. We know that it wasn't just a one-way street. And Jonathan could foresee that as he sacrifices himself for David's honor. As he lays himself down and takes the lower part that one day. He might be the refuge or the refugee. He might be the one who needs the security and safety of a faithful friend. Knowing now because of Covenant that David would never turn him or his offspring away in their hour of need. And what binds these two men together is chesed. Chesed, the Hebrew word. The, the steadfast love as we see exampled in our God. It's there in verse 14. And verse 15, twice that word chesed, steadfast love, as the ESV translates it. Sally Lloyd-Jones so helpfully in the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it like this. She calls chesed the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. And that's a really helpful unpacking of what this word means. Chesed is never merely love, although at times in our Bibles that's what's translated. It's always much more, and it's always, always at least loyal love. Loyal love. And the friendship here displayed between David and Jonathan is, a, is, is forged in chesed. They were bonded together. They were bonded together in, in the warmth of God's fellowship and the security of God's faithfulness because God's love motivated their hearts. In his commentary, Dale Ralph Davis notes this. In David's disintegrating world, there was yet one space of sanity, one refuge still intact, Jonathan. There was covenant. There, David could expect chesed. There was kindness in a raw world. So we note the friendship between Jonathan and David. Now we have to note the father's fury. And the drama uh, moves forward to the second scene, uh, beginning at verse 24. And there we find ourselves as spectators at the New Moon Festival. What is going on here uh, as Saul hosts this feast? Well, New Moon was... uh, Designed by God that as the community in Israel would grow, they would recognize that every time a new period of time was given to them, they didn't have clouds the way we have clouds. And they didn't have light pollution the way we have pollution. They could see the stars. And whenever the first sliver of a new moon appeared in the skies, a new month had been offered to them. And they would dedicate that season of time to God, that portion of a year to him as they shared in a special feast, the new moon feast. So we read in Numbers 28, for example, Numbers 28, 11 to 14, God gives this command through Moses. At the beginnings of your months, 
You shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without blemish, also three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for each bull, and two-tenths of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for one ram, and a tenth of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for every lamb, for a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Their drink offerings shall be half a hin of wine for a bull, a third of a hin for a ram, and a quarter of a hin for a lamb. This is the burnt offering of each month throughout the months of the year. So in scripture we read of all these various feasts that God's people were to have. And the key was that it was not simply to be enjoyed as a meal, but it was to have a deep meaning. The problem was that very quickly, God's people just shared the celebration, enjoyed the food, and forgot why they did it. Then we read over and over again that God would condemn them for their empty ritual. For example, Isaiah 1, 14 says this. God speaks through his prophet words of condemnation saying, Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And we've got to beware of that danger. That natural human inclination that over time takes God's means of grace that he blesses our lives with. And we divest them of their true meaning. And we see here, here's Saul. Saul, we know his heart is darkened. He's oppressed by an evil spirit. But... He's hosting a new moon festival. He's having this great celebration, this worship celebration, and he's playing his part as the saintly and devout host. But we'll discover very quickly, as you've already read, that that mask will be pulled aside. And here's a truth, a disturbing truth, that simply being engaged in worship says nothing of the true nature of our heart. Just because someone is here does not mean that all is well with their soul. Remember Judas? He shared in that meal in the upper room with the twelve and Jesus. And then immediately left the room and went to betray his master. Never presume on the state of your fellow worshiper's heart. We are charged by God. To take responsibility for one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to challenge one another. Our brothers and sisters, we have a a shared responsibility for each other. So we are our brothers and our sisters keeper. We should know what's going on in their hearts. And yes, we ask, how are you? And someone says, how are you? Well, you usually brush that off and I'm fine, how are you? And, and, and the most we think they're asking about is they're inquiring after our health. I'm fine. I am well. Praise God. But as God's people, as we come together, the question must be directed to our soul. How are you? How is your walk with God? We ought to know all is well with those with whom we worship. So the scene is set, verses 25 and 26. The king sat on his seat as at other times, on the seat by the wall, so that no one could stab him in the back. 
Jonathan sat opposite and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. Interesting to note that Saul expected the very best of David. He anticipated that if he wasn't there at that time of worship, at that special celebration, it was because As a man of integrity, he wouldn't come in a dishonoring way before God. Yet 24 hours later, he's not so accommodating. In verses 27 and 28, we note the contrast. Here, Saul speaks of him as the son of Jesse. He removes his name. He calls him a nobody. Jonathan, by contrast, calls him David, giving him his worth. And when Jonathan unveils his plan and uh, speaks his well-rehearsed excuse to Saul. Saul explodes in anger. Verses 30 to 31. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Do you not see the irony there? Jonathan, if truth be told, is the son of a perverse and rebellious man rather than a woman. And in seeking To defend David, Jonathan discovers that a spear is hurtling rapidly in his direction. At least Saul in this shows himself to be consistent for yet again he misses his target. And whatever hopes Jonathan might have cherished in his heart about the the nature of his father, they are now in tatters. And Jonathan leaves the dinner table experiencing a mixture of anger and grief. Uh, Verse 34 says, his father had disgraced him. Perhaps some of you tonight know the know this to your cost. The wounds of your father's wounds and actions can deeply scar and they can last a lifetime. And yet, as a side note, it's worth remembering that in spite of his covenant loyalty to David and his displeasure at his father's irrational anger towards his friend, by the end of his life, Jonathan would die fighting at his father's right hand. The friendship forged the father's fury. And finally, the forever faithfulness. Forever faithfulness. Verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And the carefully laid plan comes to fruition. That little boy, sort of like a ball boy, only with arrows. I'm not sure that's terribly uh, in line with health and safety or child protection. But anyway, arrows are shot. The boy goes to fetch them, and unaware of his part in this scheme. Now David is assured of his position before Saul. He knows it's safe to come out from his hiding place. And he comes to greet his friend for a final time. And while as companions, their paths will never cross again. There is a bond between them that ensures they will be faithful forever. 
Jonathan reminds David, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. You see, Jonathan is not just a friend of David. He's a follower of David. He has pledged his wholehearted allegiance to God's chosen one. He puts his life on the line to protect God's anointed. And hopefully you know that word. The Hebrew word is the Messiah, the anointed one. And you may wonder why the writer here in these concluding words highlights the fact that while both men wept, David wept the most. Why did David weep the most? They both lost the friendship, the camaraderie, both were lost. Well, David weeps most because necessarily his self-isolation would cause him to have no longer the freedom to worship. No longer would he be able to go with God's people to the tabernacle. We read of this in the Psalms. Often David declares his deep longing to be before God and worship. We read at the start of our, our service, Psalm 42. The psalmist says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Why they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. David had lost his position in the court. He had lost his position as a commander in the army. He had lost the comfort of his wife, Michal. He had lost the, the, the joy of being with his family in Bethlehem. But the greatest wound to his heart that he was no longer free to go and worship with God's people, to come before God in the tabernacle. So briefly, four points of application as we close. We listen in on a conversation between two men. And as we do so, we learn this important lesson. That when our world begins to cave in, and when the ground beneath our feet begins to crumble, we must flee to the one who has entered into a loving, lasting covenant with us. A covenant of grace and a, with, marked by a blood sacrifice for our sin. When we are finding ourselves under threat and deep pressure, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ has for us borne the wrath of his Father that we rightly deserve. That he has forged between us and his Father this lasting peace that nothing in eternity in heaven or earth can fracture. So it is to him that we must run. Bind to him in covenant love. Number two. Jonathan has stood up for his friend and his king. He was unafraid to express his loyalty, whatever the cost, even should he lose his life. The challenge is obvious. The question is clear. What price would I be willing to pay for such loyal love? What relationships am I willing to have broken so that my relationship with my Savior might be maintained? Why will I show myself to be faithful to the God of infinite loving kindness? Number three, we do thank God for loyal friends. But sometimes even the best friends can fail us. 
So we have to ask ourselves, can you say with confidence, with deep assurance, that I know the friend who sticks closer than a brother? My confidence rests that no matter what would happen, he will never turn me away. He will never close his heart to me. He will never feel me. Is Jesus Christ your friend and savior, your master and king? And finally, number four, does worship mean so much to you that you would weep if you lost the opportunity, the privilege of gathering together with God's people in his house? If forced to be absent from worship, do you miss it deeply? Do you delight to be together with God's people to come before his throne and praise him? This is the thing we perhaps take also lightly, knowing that all across the world, brothers and sisters in Christ put their lives on the line to do what we do so casually. May we love to be with God's people. May we love God's people. May we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, seek to build each other up in love and service, in loyal love to our God who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray together. Father God, we look to you. We need you. We have no hope in ourselves. We have no confidence for this and every day without a relationship with you. Father, we thank you that there is, because of Jesus, this, this peace with God. He has borne the wrath that we rightly deserve. He has been our propitiation, our sacrifice. He has stood between us and your anger against sin. And he has given to us your, the righteousness that we could never earn. So that we know now that there is peace. An unshakable, unbreakable peace. May that be our choice possession in these days. May know that because of the faithful friend, we have nothing to fear. That nothing can separate us from God's love. And Lord, may we serve you well. Lord, we confess we're weak. We, 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 we're faltering. But may we make you known in this world. May we be prepared to put our lives on the line for the, the cause of Christ. So that we would defend you with our words, with our lips and our lives. And Father, may we love your people. May we delight to be here among them. May it stir our heart to worship you. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that is ours to come before you through this new and living way opened for us by Jesus Christ. May he be our faithful friend. May we know him. We know that he will never fail us. We can always come to him. And so, Lord, may that give us comfort and care for difficult days. For they are surely before us. But with Jesus, we know that one day we will see him face to face. And we will be with him forever. And that friendship will never be broken. We praise you for this covenant and faithful love revealed to us in Christ. The one through whom we pray. Amen.